0: Well, Peter Roberts, here we are on the legendary WOR roof. Stuart Soroka, I long have been dreaming of this day. I can well understand that. I have often wondered how a fabulously successful weatherman operates. Your reports have been so accurate and so poetic. Oh, Petey, I thank you, but it's a team effort. Come, meet the WOR Weather Central staff. Um, you don't mind if I smoke this big, black, rotten, stinking cigar while I do this uh, little soiree here. Entertain the peoples here for the next 45 minutes. You know, keep them from uh, nodding off. You know how it is. <laughs> but uh, I noticed that none of you uh, in there in the control room tonight, all my friends and neighbors, my compatriots here, my companions in arms, I notice none of you have commented on my magnificent haircut. Yeah, right look at that. Look at a sheepish looking. Well, you know why it's such a green haircut? And why I'm so proud of it? Well, I cut my own hair. That's right. What do you think I was doing down at the H and H there with that soup? Bring it up there, please. Oh, yeah, yeah, wow. Yeah. Don't you Uh, think these, these are magnificent sideburns? Very big. They look like a pair of shaving brushes hanging down from my ears there. In fact, uh, you know, when I was on the uh, Joe Franklin show, I got this tremendous amount of mail from people applauding my sideburns. I think that's just great. You know, it isn't very often that a guy gets, you know, thing, these guys going there. Nobody's ever applauded my feet. Although I did get a, a nice fan letter from somebody who liked my knees. It's a great shot of my knees. Did you see it there, Herb? And it was in color. And this lady wrote and says, I did not know that you had green knees until. Uh, well, uh, you know what you're going to do. What are you going to do after all you work in this place long enough? You're going to have green knees, baby, or something's going to be green. Uh, would you please, uh, if you will, get, get the week off to a nice? Uh, how about a little of that, uh, that penny whistle? No, 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 no. That's, uh, that's it, Hurd. Thank you. All right, let's get out of them kazoo, friends. Let's go. Got to get this week off. It's tough here. That's it. I'm warming up my kazoo. Don't worry about it. there. Hold it there. Now reset that herb. Enough right there to keep him going. That's a good way to start. Hey, uh, you know, uh, I'd like to, uh, hate to bring you bad news, but uh, maybe maybe this is no surprise to any of you, but uh, I'm sitting around in the, in the place there where they're shining my shoes. You know, it's terrible. That guy shined my shoes for 20 minutes before he discovered I was barefoot. And you know, he shined my feet. And, uh, I'm not going to say anything what i say if, if if believe me if 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 you heard that in a bad broadway play by neil simon you would think it's funny i say it you go oh what a rotten joke oh you know why because you don't pay 980 a seat that's why walter Kerr don't write me up all right uh, oh uh, what i was going to say is i'm sitting there with the guy shining my foot and uh, i picked up this magazine and uh it was a popular science fantasy fiction magazine uh, you figure that one a popular science fantasy fiction magazine so I mean you know <laughs> so I'd pick it up there and uh, I'm looking at it and they got all the stuff about astrology and how if uh, if uh, what are what are the signs of the zodiac here uh, uh, if you're a uh, Oh, what's the one there if you're a squirrel what is the sign of the squirrel you yeah. know. Well, the sign of the squirrel, yeah, it's that big cross feather there with a couple of little acorns in there. The sign of the squirrel. Now, I don't know anybody. Yeah, If if you're born in the month of April, late March and early April, you're the sign of the squirrel. I didn't know that. So I'm uh, I'm reading this stuff, and I'm kind of soaking it all in there. The guy's rubbing away at my foot. And uh, I came across this news note here, which I think, uh, I mean, for those of you who've been... uh, Troubled with this problem, I suspect it might be helpful, Herb. You listen now. This might help you. You're scientifically minded, and this is in this magazine, Science type magazine. It says insomnia is becoming a far more widespread problem in the United States, according to reports made by several groups at an international symposium on the physiology and pathology of sleep, which was held at the University School of Medicine. You know, it's studying sleep. You know. You know, they really don't know much about that. I got this friend who's this doctor, see? And he walks around, and I keep asking him these questions. It's very terrible to ask And I says, hey, Frank, what is it? What is a sleep? So, I don't know. I says, well, Frank, you're a doctor. What happens when you sleep? Hmm. Beats me. I said, oh, Frank, I could say that. The other day I said I had this, you know, I, I had this terrible pain. I says, what a terrible pain, Frank. Oh, wow. What do I do? So... Oh, aspirin. That's what my mother always had taken aspirin, you know, or, you know, <laughs> think clean thoughts or something like that, you know, and that's so disappointing. So, you know, they don't really know much about sleep, and uh, that they're starting to study it now the physiology and pathology of sleep. And a pharmaceutical company said that at least 14% of all Americans, that means about 1.4 out of 10, for it, right? How's that, for instant math, Mark? Oh, man. 14% of all Americans, listen to this, man, are estimated to be suffering from one form or another of insomnia. One out of ten. And other researchers said the use of sedatives has now extended to 25% of the people. One out of four guys has to get hit on the head with a hammer to go to sleep. One kind of... Have you seen those commercials where, where you see this guy, he's all very nervous, and this lady comes on and says, Yes, take the friendly soothing glue pill. You know that one? Boy, is she bomb. I, You know, I, I'm. Uh, you notice that? This chick is floating around. And then, and, and, uh, yeah. <laughs> and I'm just curious. One psychiatrist suggested. Now, here's where we're getting down to the nitty gritty. You know, you say, Ah, oh, who's the one talking about sex? All right, listen to this one, man. One psychiatrist suggested that exercise. Small portions of high-protein foods and sex are preferred over barbiturates as sleep-inducers. Would you please, Herb? We will salute that. That's a <laughs> guy getting right down there. work are la da da la la-da-da, la da da la da da la da da yeah, ba 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 yeah, there it is, friends. I mean, that's a great way to get a little sleep there. And uh, oh, oh, no, no, no! I'm talking about high-protein food. channel of high-protein food out there. What is a high-protein? You know, what is high-protein food? You have a couple of shrimp, something like that. That's high-protein. That puts you sleep boy. And uh, of course, the other stuff that the psychiatrist was talking about, though, that's uh, You know, that's that's up to you. I mean, I ain't going to suggest that. Hit the money button if you will, Charlie. All together now, let's all sing this out, friends. Come on, all together now. Sing it out. People on the go. Oh, yeah. They always know. It's Miller High Life Beer. Yeah, yeah. Miller High Life Beer. All right, bring it up there, baby. Move your knees here, friend, and pull in your gut. Stand right up and be honest and admit it, that if you want a snoot full of real beer, you're going to make it Miller High Life every time. The champagne of bottled beer. They don't call this beer High Life or nothing, friends. If you want it in cans, if you want it in the lovely crystal bottles that make such great uh, things to throw down the air champ, they're all tunes that so they make a pleasant sound when they break. Or if you want it in a trough, friends, you can get it anywhere you like it. It's Miller High Life, the champagne of bottle beer, beard, and brewed in that uh, Taj Mahal of America, Milwaukee. Bring it in. I've been to Milwaukee, friends. Don't you argue with me. I know Milwaukee. I ran out of gas when that Milwaukee said... Hey, listen, we've got the terrific uh, response on our little frog show. You know that one we did about frogs? You didn't hear that, huh, Herb? We saluted frogs. And uh, I've got a large number of requests from people who want me to salute snakes. And they, yeah, they like snakes. You know who's a snake nut who likes snakes? No, no. No, I mean a guy who actually goes out and bought snakes as pets and uh, kept them around and digs them. Russ here. Rust Dunbar. In fact, he had a boa constrictor. And he got so big that one day that little son of a gun grabbed him by the foot and he was stuck there for a week and a half, you know, and finally he had to call the Bronx Zoo. And now his boa is out there making uh, occasional guest appearances at the Bronx Zoo. He's in show now. <laughs> I wonder if an animal, uh, this is a, a philosophical question here, and it's totally rhetorical, so I don't want anybody to frantically call me up and tell me they know because I don't think anybody knows and uh, it's one of those things that you're going to conjecture about I've always conjectured about what really does go on in an animal's mind I really have I've thought about this a lot of times and uh like I get up on a horse see I love to ride and uh, I get up on a horse and that horse will look back see he turned his head and he looked back and you know he's looking at you see <laughs> and I wonder what in the heck he thinks you know what, whether uh he has to have some kind of a mind after all this is an animal and he uh he, uh, he's you know, an operating organism, so he he must have something in his mind sometimes. Uh, I, I, I felt this way when I was in Africa. I kept thinking this in Africa. Because in Africa, an animal is seen much more clearly as an animal. And, of course, when you live here in uh, the States, or generally you run into animals in the States, and you, you, you don't really run into animals, you run into pets. That's a different scene. And so here's a pet sitting there, and he's uh, looking around... And you know he's got one thing in mind. He wants something to eat. Every pet I ever saw wants something to eat. That's about it. you know. Or they wanted you to pet him on the head. That's about it. And if, he, if you do pet him on the head, I wonder what they think about. Petting a dog on the head, what does he think? Gee, isn't it great that somebody's petting me on the head? <laughs> I don't know. I, or are they putting you on? I can't figure it out. I wonder whether a dog says, you know, this poor slob, I don't know what it is with these Things, these funny-looking things with the feet on them that walk around. Uh, these animals, are us. He's talking about us. I don't know what these things. Why they like to do this thing of patting me on the head? <laughs> and so he does it to humor you. Has it occurred to you that a dog may uh, want you to pat him because he figures he's humoring you? He doesn't like it actually. <laughs> but, you know, but what the heck? You know, this is his pain is dues. So uh, you pat him on the head. And uh, he knows that if, you, if, if he is allowed to be patted on the head, what, what it follows, of course, is a dog yummy. Some other, <laughs> some other goofy thing like that. But I've often wondered about what animals think. Frogs. Now, uh, you take an animal like a, like a dog, which can be domesticated. Uh, you know, dogs, cats, domesticated creatures like that. But uh, what what about, say, a giraffe? Now here is an animal. It's not a domestic animal in any sense of the word, and they're really, they're really a beautiful animal. I think the giraffe has to be uh, the most, if not the most beautiful animal that I've ever seen. Very close to it, and it's a peculiar kind of beauty. There's a an almost eerie stateliness about the giraffe. They look very unreal. And the guy in the car, we were driving along in this uh, little car in the bush, in the Kruger park which is in the far northern end of South Africa we're driving along and the first giraffe that we saw was so close to the road it was it was scary for a minute because they tower you know a giraffe is 18 feet high a full-grown male giraffe is 18 feet tall now figure how tall 18 feet is that is close to two stories high this baby Now, when you're looking at an animal that's two stories high, and they stand absolutely stark still, they don't move for the first moment or two when they first spot you. And they just stand there like they're made out of some kind of, well, some sort of a statue. And they don't look like they belong where they are, and yet at the same time, they are so intimately a part of the horizon that you can't really imagine them anywhere else. They are a totally improbable animal, completely. And they have this tiny, beautiful, pointed head. Looks down. And they stand, stark. And practically every giraffe, you see, a, a giraffe to see you uh, has to be in a certain position. He can't; His eyes don't work like a man's eyes, where uh, you look, you know, a man will face something and look at it. But a giraffe doesn't. So he turns his whole head. And he looks right down and just stands there. And you can see the wind ruffling his mane, this this brushy kind of mane that runs up the top of their, the, the neck. And his neck is arched. And you see this wind just ruffling it. And then you notice that the ruffling is more than a ruffle. There's a bird on him. You know, every giraffe has a, a two or three birds that hang around with him. Yeah, they live right on him, sit on his head. And uh, yeah, they're parasites. Well, that reminds me, this is WOR, and, uh, you know, it's us, and we're here in New York. And we got another little whoopee here for you, of your friends. Two things a Pontiac Firebird can give you, a $6,000 sports car, can't. What's that? More than $3,000 in change. Yeah? What's the second thing? Drive it, baby. Break away in track in Pontiac white-tracked in Pontiac This breakaway car this <inaudible> <inaudible> Gee, that was nice, wasn't it? I love that tune, just so beautiful. Uh, well, speaking of great hit tunes, in the New York area, there's no more indicative tune of the basic New York soul and psyche than that magnificent Palisades Amusement Park song. And now for the whole gang Out at Shorty's, Bill Charlie's And Snooky's out at Staten Island Where they're having a big Christmas party Over there tonight And I don't know why they haven't At this time of the year We're dedicating the Palisades song Let's go, again. Well, Say it again. coast to coast, wear a dime, <speaking> but the most. Ride the coaster, get cool in the waves in the pool. You'll have fun. So come on over. over. Yes, sir, friends. Swim in the world's largest outdoor saltwater pool. It's called the ocean. Tuesdays and Thursdays, many rides are just $0.05 cents and $0.10. Cents. So come on over, friend. There's always free parking at Palisades Amusement Park. not da-dump, dum I, I, One time I rode on a bus with a guy for, oh, about two hours, a, a captain, an airline captain, and we talked about aircraft the entire ride, and he was a 727 pilot. And he said, boy, that's a beautiful... Idea. He was. We were, we were discussing uh, flying techniques and so on about... Uh, various types of jet versus various types of turboprop and so on and uh he 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 was um, very much in love with the, the uh, 727 he also said too that uh, beside that his favorite aircraft to fly just to fly the the satisfaction of flying it is the dc8 the one that uh, eastern flies that we just mentioned great airplane uh, and uh, and so we, we were riding along and and uh, i said well what do you do what uh I mean, you know, you fly all the time. I said, you know, I, I fly for kicks. I love flying, and it's, uh, it's my hobby, really. And uh, what do you do? What's your hobby? And uh, since you fly, I, I wondered. Well, he says, oh, man. He said, I, I, I said, well, I'm going to tell you. It's a little embarrassing. I said, what? He says, well, I rebuild airplanes. And uh, he, he rebuilds airplanes. I said, you rebuild airplanes? He says, yeah. He said, I, I look all over the country. He said, whatever I hear of, a, of, a, of an antique airplane, that uh, is in somebody's barn or garage or someplace or warehouse. He said, I, I get a line on it, and I, I get a hold of it. If I can, I rebuild it. I said, well, what do you have now? And uh, I was astounded to hear what he had. he had. He had a couple of really fantastic airplanes. Among them, he had built an absolute scale model. Well, not scale. It's a one-to-one model. It's a, the real thing. He built a reproduction of the Fokker triplane, the uh, World War I fighter. And uh, he lived out in California someplace, and he had this Falker triplane, and uh, you know the red one. This is this is the aircraft that uh, that uh, Baron von Richthofen flew. In fact, it was the one that the the dreaded Red Baron was shot down in. He was flying a Falker triplane at the time. And uh, it's funny. I've run into people all around, all over the country. It's curious who think the Red Baron is a character in Snoopy. Yeah, you know, they read you. They think that that uh, that. Uh, Charlie Brown, or Peanuts, or Charles Schultz, the the cartoonist, invented a character called the Red Baron. Everyone thinks it's a great character. You watch, there's going to be a peel-off on that cartoon strip eventually, and it will be a cartoon strip called the Red Baron. And (laughs) it'll look something like Batman. he'd be fighting dogs for some strange reason. But uh, nevertheless, uh, the Red Baron... Yeah, that, that cartoon strip now has completely eluded me. I think that strip has gone completely to pot personally isn't that a terrible thing to say i mean the minute uh as, you know snoopy started to believe he was bobby hall and all that stuff i said you know i don't mind i don't mind uh philip roth and his uh, walter middy fantasies and i don't mind george plimpton uh you know constantly imagining that if he if he uh fought hard enough he would become uh, uh who knows what you know maybe uh arnold palmer but uh when it when the when the dog scene starts breaking out, then I say, oh come on! This wall, no, we're we're living in an age of galloping Walter Mittyism. I'm serious. You you see it popping up everywhere. Practically every other play is about a guy's fantasies, about how he imagines himself uh, uh, making the scene with Raquel Welch. And uh, this is Walter. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Woody Allen is always doing this, you know, Walter Mitty type stuff. And then, of course, when it gets to be ethnic Walter Middy, that's getting a little involved. <laughs> and, uh, ultimately, you don't know where it's all going to stop. And I guess, I guess this is one of the reasons why people today, because a lot of people are living in the Walter Mitty era, uh, in their mind. And uh, so you find kids in colleges, they, they keep imagining themselves as writing this great novel, they keep seeing themselves as various things, uh, Hemingway, uh, Esquire's got the Hemingway, the galloping Hemingway-itis bit. They always either see themselves ultimately as uh, a big game hunter who's writ a fa- written a fantastic bestseller about World War One, or they see themselves ultimately as a middleweight fighter who's about to take on George Plimpton for the title. And uh, so, so uh, it, uh, it is this galloping Walter Mittyism is is getting really, uh, it's really getting wild. And uh, you see it on all hands. Every practically every other novel now today is about a man's fantasy every other. I'm kidding myself. What do you mean? I'd say at least nine out of ten novels are about guys' fantasies. The hero always starts out this little guy, this sad little creature who's been defeated, and he's either on a, an analyst's couch. That gimmick has been used a thousand times. And his, his, uh, his fantasies, then, about how uh, fantastic he sees himself in his dreams. Oh, yes, sexual. Of course, it's all sexual fantasies now. A few years ago, it was uh, action fantasies, and uh, Walter Mitty saw himself as an RAF pilot. I mean, the real Walter Mitty, what hath James Thurber wrought? <laughs> he has spawned an entire, an entire literary genre. In fact, I'm waiting for this to be formalized. In fact, I, why don't we write to the New York Times book review section it Says, You know, in the back there... Uh, you have this uh, section, Briefly Noted. Well, see, Briefly Noted in the back of their uh, Literary Times uh, book review section there. That Briefly Noted means that's not important. See, that's Briefly Noted. And they have uh, crime in the annals of crime. Time. And they have uh, all the, uh, the crime novels. That are That's a category, you see, a genre. Then they have uh, Western. That's a genre. Then you have uh, spy novels. That's a genre, you see. Well when are they going to have uh, sexual fantasy novels? It's so just a genre. you know briefly note it in the back. And uh, the sexual fantasist fans can then uh, collect their sexual fantasy novels. And uh, you know separate that from real literature <laughs> and uh, go in, and then make it a genre because they're all classical. They, they, they have a classical quality to them now. Classical, meaning they all have the same sound, that you, that you keep ringing the same changes begin with there has to be the uh, almost all of them are couched in pseudo humor terms I, I rarely find any of them funny and everybody tells me how funny they are I keep trying to read them and find I find them incessantly dull and uh, yet uh, uh, I, I noticed one reviewer about one of the most recent uh, sexual fantasy type novels he had the temerity and the guts, and I might say the honesty, to finally say, well, most of the stories that this guy's put into this so-called novel, I've heard in Third Avenue bars for years. <laughs> now, I'm going to tell you something, how a man can be so far ahead of his time that uh, he makes it, he doesn't make it. He doesn't make it at all. Uh, about, uh, oh, I, I say, when I first came to New York, I'm sitting in an office one day. I'm want to hear this story? This is the literary, the literary world. I'm sitting in this office one day, see? And um, and it's a PR guy's office. The guy that was a little two bit public relations guy. Nice guy, but you a know, little office. He was struggling along there. And uh, he was a friend of mine. And he had a guy who worked with him. It's the kind of a rotund, innocent looking guy. Uh, parted his hair in the middle. He looked like a Kiwanis Club. Uh, uh, the the anchor man on anybody's bowling team is what he looked like, see? And so we're sitting there one day, and, and uh, he turns to me, the, the, my friend, says, Hey, uh, he says, you know uh, you know old Jack over there? He says, hey, Jack's curious. He says, You do a lot of writing. You've you, uh, written for a lot of places, and you write for Playboy and all that stuff. He says, uh, Jack's curious. Uh, w- would you like to read something he wrote? And I says, Yeah, sure. And so Jack comes up to me. I can't remember his last name, and that's what bothers me. Jack comes up to me, and he says, uh, Oh, he says, I've been just playing around with this at night. He says, I've I an idea for just a funny thing, he says, it's not serious, he says, nobody would publish it, it's ridiculous. And so I said, well, well, let me read it. So I took the manuscript, and I started to read this thing. Well, <laughs> I'll tell you what he did. It was a, it was a wild idea for a book. Now, uh, of course, what's going to happen now? I'm giving this idea to 422 people immediately, you see. Well, now, wait a minute, I'll just tell you what he did, because you see this author that I'm referring to earlier, the one that uh, the critic reviewed. He did it, too, but he's gotten large literary kudos for it, you see, so it doesn't really matter. It's been done. So I'm reading this thing, and I read about three pages. And it was was fascinating. So I called him up on the phone. I said, Jack, I said, what was your idea in this book? I said, is it what I thought it? Think it is? He says, yeah. I said, you mean to tell me you did it, huh? He says, yeah. Well, you know what he did? He collected every dirty story he ever heard. Now I'm serious. He just collected dirty jokes. You know, like there was a guy one time, and uh, he, he uh, had a flat tire, so he had to stop at this farmhouse, and the farmer came out and says, "Well, of course, you know, you know the whole thing." Well, you've heard millions of dirty stories. Now this guy collected them. Now remember that. He, whenever he heard a dirty story, he would he would uh, he would uh, collect it and write it down. He did it deliberately, and he put them on little three by five file cards, okay, until he had a whole great big pile of them, he had a whole raft of them, and he had them filed under different uh, categories, like subjects, like uh, farmer daughter, uh, like, (laughs) you know, all different subjects, and so uh, here he had them now, now what do you think he was collecting them for, now most people would say, well, he's just got a collection of dirty jokes, no, he just collect these things, and one day he sat down, and here's what he did, he had a hero, okay. Now the hero in his book, of uh, course, you see this is why he would lose. Because if you notice that the uh, that the hero types in all these fantasy novels are always sensitive, and the author <laughs> invariably, uh, and so so he has these sexual fantasies. Whether it's uh, Philip Roth or whether it's uh, you can name them, uh, uh, Don Levy, he writes this incessantly, over and over again, the same, the Ginger Man syndrome. I suspect that the only people who really like these novels are guys that do a lot of sexual fantasizing themselves. And, and you know, there's large numbers of fellows out there, friends, who don't have to fantasize about sex, gang. <laughs> you know? At the, in other words, it's a reality. So, uh, I mean, you know, uh, after all, uh, uh, flyers don't fantasize about flying. They fly. don't sit around and draw pictures of airplanes and... uh, imagine themselves as Red Barons. They just go out and get in their Apache and go. I think that the world is rapidly dividing itself into two groups of people, those who do and those who don't, and those who don't write about it for the rest of the crowd that don't. I'm serious. I'm very serious. I'll let that soak in out there. And I've come to the conclusion that most reviewers don't. (laughs) <laughs> That's why they dig this. In fact, a reviewer almost by definition is a guy that does almost anything. You don't think that uh, Walter Kerr writes plays, do you? Right. You don't think for a minute that uh, that Red Smith plays third base, do you? Yeah. Or ever did. Right. And so uh, you you wind up into this uh, this strange. Uh, Convoluted world where where the guys who do find the books that are written about those who don't ineffably dull. Now, if you're going and they keep saying, well, after all, let's say, let's face it, when sex is only just a, it's a natural function. They keep talking about that, yet they keep writing books about it. Well, eating is a natural function. Can you imagine the guy writing an entire novel about this guy who has these fantastic meals? And all he does is sit there and, you know, has, he has turkeys and stuffing and he yells about the soup. And all that. <laughs> no, you would find that dull because, you know, you get the. Who needs to read about some guy uh, scoffing a cheeseburger? All you got to do is go down to Big Red Cheeseburger Heaven and go down and have yourself a cheeseburger, and that's the end of it. You don't have to read about it. So I've come to the conclusion that the people who dig this stuff generally are those. To whom sex is an abstract concept, something that because their mother was rotten, they've never been able to be involved in. I'm serious, and I think this entire literary genre should be formalized. I, I, I you know, so instead of just calling it novel, why do we make it a genre? You know, years ago people used to consider the western a regular novel. Oh yeah, when, when, uh, when uh, the early days of the western. Uh, which was uh, uh, during the days when guys like Zane Gray were writing westerns at the time of World War I or that, a- there, you know, shortly thereafter, they weren't called a special novel for slobs. They were, they were really, uh, that was called a, a novel. And so The Writers of the Purple Sage was a novel. But today now it would be way in the back of the times in a little thing called Briefly Noted because it has become a genre. Which means that there's a little devoted crowd that reads everything called "A uh, Hard Day at the, the Purple Gulch," uh, <laughs> you know, shoot them Out at the Bar X Ranch," and uh, they'll they'll read this stuff no matter what it is. They just read all of it because they happen to be hung on that form of literature. I'm not putting it down, but they are. And so, but hardly ever does a western break through and be considered a regular. Now, in 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 short, it, it's hardly ever considered part of the regular. A group of now, in other words, a novel, a, ge- a legitimate general novel. Once in a while, one will pop through, but it has to be a takeoff on a western novel, generally. And so, uh, the novel has be- the western novel has become a genre. And even though it may take a guy two years to write a western, and he may spend uh, uh, a year researching it and one thing and really working on it, he may work on it even longer than say uh, Norman Mailer works on a novel. You- he knows. That his novel is going to be in the last two or three, if at all, the last two or three pages of the Times, listed with 422 others, and, and the, the total review will be uh, good, or uh, fair, or uh, mildly diverting, or a gasser. That's all, you know. <laughs> Poor guy. And, uh, he, he just won't. He won't get anywhere, because uh, a friend of mine happens to be an editor who edits westerns, and he says, you know, it's a fact. Now, we also know this is true of detective novels. And unless it's the uh, expose type that exposes the, uh, the workings of an innermost mind of, uh, of a big city detective dealing with race problems and the homosexual frankly treated, that kind of stuff. Now that, that uh, but in a few years that too will drop into the genre and I suspect uh, there should be a genre of novels called authors who had overbearing mothers who now wear pink shoes? And uh, <laughs> you know that kind. Uh, the uh, uh, this should be a genre because they're all the same. I I I've read I've read a dozen of these things and they keep getting wild applause. And I find that they're all based on pretty much the same set of of uh, propositions: that uh, mother bad, father uh, castrated, uh, son sensitive. The uh, the entire novel then consists of his fantasies. Now, uh, this should be genuinely put into a genre form. So so you know we're warned. Now, uh, on the other hand, uh, I'm not putting it down. It's it's mildly diverting. I I find it also very interesting to read a western, but I'm not going to take seriously. It's a a genre. Uh, I'm not going to. uh, And yet, yet there are some very good westerns written. the, The genre novel is always that way. So my proposition, my proposal is that I, well, in fact, I think it'll happen. I I suspect that in the next couple of years you're going to find it finally being realized that we have a a new genre on our hands, and it will be uh, eventually put. Now, uh, again, uh, the fantasy world that we're living in is getting to be rampant. Practically every other book that is written, uh, and have you noticed the fantastic overblown quality of some of these books? An example of that is the, the current rash of, quote, inside sport novels. Uh, this, uh, this is, uh, wouldn't it be great to imagine myself as a uh, leading pro on the pro tennis circuit? And there I stood, facing Pancho Gonzalez at the, the center court at Wimbledon, that kind of thing. Me, poor little me, me who can hardly tie his own shoes and has to call his mother in to brush his teeth little me who all of his days looked from worshipful distances upon these great athletes everywhere little me stood ready to field pancho gonzalez dreaded overhead ace sir He moved closer to the baseline he looked down i saw the flash of the ball and there was a sudden streak of white and another oh it was a first sir and i realized now why the pro is the pro pancho smiled his thin sinister smile Strangely enough, folks, you won't realize that Pancho Gonzalez is kind to his mother and always smiles a thin, sinister smile after he always drives that hard overhand ace serve down the baseline, kicking up a spume of white gravel dust. I looked up into the sun. I moved back, waiting for his second serve. And pow! It was by me before I even had a chance to grab my racket. We changed courts. You you see the whole thing. (laughs) Well, now this, this is a... This is a genre, and it, it, it's, it's fantasy, Bill. It's, uh, it's all right, and I find it interesting. But what I do find sad is the treatment of the athletes in these books. They are invariably wise, funny, sardonic, great wisdom. They all have great wisdom. Have you noticed that? Tremendous folk wisdom. And uh, it goes on, <laughs> and, and I... Uh, This is part of the Walter Mitty dream, you see, because the Walter Mitty dream secretly underneath it all is that the people who do things are from another level of humanity. They're from another... It's almost another species. Years ago, that Walter Mitty thing was very prevalent in what they called fan mags, which have almost disappeared. And ladies used to sit around on front porches and imagine that they were Myrna Loy, They did. At least imagine. They really did. And there would be there would be worshipful articles in magazines like I sat next to Myrna Loy in the hairdresser. Inside a three page scoop, and the ladies would sit there and imagine being next to Myrna Loy and talking to her, and how Myrna Loy was always just tremendously full of wisdom and knowledge and wit, and, and she was just great. You find us a lot in teen fiction today, like, uh, you know, uh, uh, Ringo Starr, a conversation with Ringo. I could hardly wait. Yes, my phone call had been put through, and I could hear the sound of the international wires humming in just a few moments. Me, little me, yes, little me a junior at Santa Barbara High School was about to talk to Ringo Starr himself Ringo and then I heard a click on the phone and there was a sudden silence and then I heard yeah oh, yeah I want it was Ringo <laughs> this is yeah very good wasn't it you kind of like that well I'm a good performer friends I don't have to dream of being performing. You know? <laughs> and so this uh, this is uh, the teen fiction you see I think I think the fantasy world the fantasy st- form that we have now is part of the prolonged adolescence that people are now today involved in so today uh, a guy who's 30 he really thinks of himself as a kid he's a kid and so he indulges in the same daydreams that kids indulged in when you know kids because after all a kid who's only 14 it would be impossible for him to play on the yankees and so he dreams of playing on the yankees and it's legitimate after all. I mean, he's only 14. He's only weighs 22 pounds. He, you're not going to find this guy driving a ball over the scoreboard at Yankee Stadium. So he dreams of it. But now we have 30-year-old men doing it. It's part of the prolonged adolescence that we're going through. A Kids, when they're 14, it's legitimate for a kid of 14 to have sexual fantasies. Because, you know, there's <laughs> a lot of stuff he doesn't know and a lot of things. But when 30-year-old guys are having it, then you begin to worry about him. Pretty sad, it really is. And so, whenever I read these novels, these uh, these books about the I played uh, uh, I played defensive end for the Green Bay Packers, I kind of think. Well, I, I'm always reminded of Mrs. Bruner, big fat old Mrs. Bruner, whose husband uh, was, was drunk every day of the year. I, I, I keep thinking of her sitting out in the front porch. And hearing the creak of her swing as she read True Romances. And on the cover would be the headlined True Romance for that week. I had a date with Clark Gable. Inside, seven searing magnetic pages. And they would always open up with, yes, Clark Gable had asked me for a date. I could hardly wait. My, my stomach was all filled with little purple butterflies. And as I dashed about... Checking and rechecking the last few the, the little details of my hair. And then the phone rang. It was Clark Gable. Yes. Old fantasists we salute thee. How many kids imagine? I think this is one of the reasons why we're anti-authority today. There's nothing that makes a guy who fantasizes himself as president matter than to see an actual president. One who really did it. You know, oh yes, oh, oh yeah. Norman Mailer imagines himself the next mayor of New York. No wonder he hates the real mayor. <laughs> I mean, it goes on and on and on. And so, ultimately, I suspect that every man, when he is born, will be issued his life fantasy. I mean, don't bother to do anything. I was a, I was a famous brain surgeon. As as a glittering, glistening lights. Of the operating arena played upon my forehead as I looked down at the most difficult case, the most difficult patient of my entire career. A rare operation was about to begin. The silence in the room was deafening. Just the slow thump, thump, thump of the oxygen machine as it pumped its life blood into the patient's body. Oh, James Thurber, what hath Donald Law?